How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion in the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Albert Jerez. Uh, I make earthenware ceramics. Started drawing when I was a kid, just out of compulsion, I guess. I like cartoons a lot. And uh, thought that animating was going to be my life path when I was a kid. And then as the world slowly progressed technologically, I didn't really like computers. I like doing stuff with my hands. And I was like, everything's animated on a computer. Forget that crap. Got into comic books, kept drawing, then got to college and took a pottery class. And was like, that looks like magic. It blew me away how difficult it was and uh, and still can be, how challenging it can be. But it's like uh, that wanting to pursue something and try to master it, that's what really drew me to clay. And then once you put your hands in the mud, it just takes you back to being a kid. True or false, you were a fellow art kid. Absolutely true. That's right. Though we didn't go to the same school, we managed to hang out some, and uh, creativity was always a part of that. Yeah, back then, it's funny how I just touched clay once and, uh, and kind of left it for years and years. Do you think the timing wasn't quite right? You know, sometimes I wonder why we choose something over another. Like, In a lot of ways, it's what we're exposed to. You grew up in a family that was very in touch with their Appalachian heritage and handcrafts and kind of doing it yourself kind of mentality. Whereas my family was a transplant from Tampa, Florida to Murphy, North Carolina. So I didn't know anything about crafts except through my education. Fortunately, I had Suzanne Deloria as my art teacher and she made sure to teach me all about the Appalachian handcrafts and I'm forever grateful. So I think a lot of it was just, I didn't have a potter's wheel in front of me. I wasn't around someone who was making pottery, but there was a vast community of creative people around, which I did know. And I think everybody encouraged me in my art. So it wasn't bad. It was just, yeah, maybe you're right. Like the timing wasn't right. I wasn't in the right place and the right time. All those things just slowly come together. I feel like it's happening more and more the older I get. One thing about pottery is that you need equipment. So you need a kiln, you need kind of big things. Absolutely. When you realized, I really want to do this, how did you go about funding that and getting your studio together? So I, I really lucked out. So after college, so graduated from UNCA, just did a Bachelor of Arts because I was ready to go into the school of hard knocks, which is life, marriage, kids, family, work. I thought that's where the real education was after being in academia for a while. You know, what did the world have in store for me? I got a job at Highwater Place, and there was a guy named Tim, and he was moving to Sweden. 
and he didn't want to take all his pottery equipment and stuff with him. Uh, he'd had a kiln that he'd used for years, and it was a little beat up, but still in good condition. He'd only ever fired it like super low fire, and basically sold me all his stuff. It was a couple of hundred bucks, and I stored it at a friend's house for what felt like ever. Didn't even know if the kiln would work. Hadn't plugged it in. Yeah, basically, I stumbled upon it, um, and somebody was kind enough to give me a sweet deal, give me all their glazes, colorants, and things that would, you know, they'd cost thousands of dollars for somebody. Now, the potter's wheel, straight out of college, that was an investment. I throw all my pots on a treadle wheel, uh, so it doesn't require any electricity. It's only body power, which limits the size of things I can throw, but uh, really gives me a feeling of an intuitiveness when I'm touching the clay that I don't have on electric wheels. So that wheel I bought from a gentleman named Billy Martin. Beautiful craftsmanship. I met the gentleman, uh, had one issue, and he immediately came out to Asheville, made a day of it, helped me out. Great guy. But that was like my number one thing. I was like, I can't be a potter without a wheel, which isn't necessarily true. You can hand build, you can make play so many ways, but the wheel always been incremental to the therapy I consider making clay, you know, stuff out of clay to be. I think some people don't realize that treadle wheels are an option. Can you explain a little bit how that works, that you're not plugging it in and pressing a pedal? Absolutely. So the, the most primitive potter's wheel would be a kick wheel. You've got the wheel head where you make your pots. You've got a shaft that goes directly down, straight down to a larger wheel called the flywheel. It's made out of concrete or some super big timbers, something heavy and balanced. Kick that wheel with your foot, that propels the top wheel, and it continues the momentum because it's larger in circumference and heavier. The treadle wheel is the same principle, except you have a crooked shaft that goes from the, the wheel head to the flywheel, and you got a basically a pedal, it's basically a big stick of wood that sticks out to the side that my left foot rests on and pushes against in rhythm. And it pumps the flywheel and creates momentum that really can get going pretty darn fast if you kick it. And then also you're saying it was a craftsperson who made that wheel for you. So it's yeah. levels and layers of craftsmanship before the pot even happens, you know? Sure is. You're right. like There's that. a lot that goes into it. You're talking about <laughs> Susie Delorier, amazing lady. Would you consider her one of your main mentors, like in your youth? Absolutely. I luckily had a lot of art teachers that recognized that I had some talent when I was young and helped me pursue it. But out of all of them, Susie was the most there, the most involved. I would never came to Asheville without her. I would have never went to UNCA. I would have never found clay, probably. Maybe if, you know, who knows, the universe might have made it happen. But luckily, I met Susie. And just the level of love she had for the crafts that come out of the Appalachian Mountains and how she made it seem like magic to me. That these people know how to do everything from the ground up. They don't need anything, much less electricity. They can do it all you know, just from the nature around them. So that, you know, being a city boy coming to live in a small town, I had a lot of cultural biases 
into the mountains thinking people were backwards. Lord, that I know I was the one who was backwards. I was the one that was so closed off. And I really learned so much about myself from living a slower pace of life in tune with my surroundings. You're saying when your kids were young, it was harder for you to do your creative things, but that you realized that it was actually a big part of your health. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. When my son was born, he's 14 now, I, I really tried. I had a lot of pots that I had made before he was born that I was really eager to fire. I had a few friends that I had made along the way who had some wood kilns, which is what I kind of was into back then. And I uh, managed to do one firing when I was working a full-time job and my son was a little baby and just trying to juggle all that. Like I've never been good at juggling a lot of tasks to try to like balance that creativity, work life, family life. I realized early on that I, I couldn't. And uh, so I turned to my family to create the, the fulfillment that I had from art and People are wonderful, even your children, even your spouse, but nobody can really fulfill whatever it is we get from being creative, from accessing that part of us, nothing else can fulfill it. And it took me so many years of feeling like crap, of being extremely depressed despite having a beautiful, healthy family. You know, honestly, took it took my wife telling me that she wanted a divorce to wake me the fuck up. I couldn't fix our relationship. It had gone too far and she really wanted something new and I couldn't give her that. But what it did for me was basically break me wide open to all my feelings and emotions that as a young man, I had like stuffed deep down and never accessed, you know, and uh, never knew how to deal with really. And during that time, finding equilibrium, I started drawing again. So basically drawing became my way back into creativity. And then slowly, once I established myself separate from my ex-wife and had a home, I was like, I got to have a studio. I don't care if I got to sneak it in the closet, sneak it in the bedroom. So that's what I did. I wound up running a little apartment and I made one of the bedrooms into my studio space. I had a little space to sleep and the majority of the room, so there's 25% of the room was where I slept. 75% was where I threw, but I didn't have anywhere to fire anything, but I was, I was hoping to take it to my friend's house and fire it. That was kind of hit or miss. And that was it. And then through various transformations of where I live, that was like the one thing that had to be. It was like, I don't care. I live in a cardboard box. I got to have a spot to make art. So it's been a priority ever since. If you're a creative individual, make sure you make the space. Even if it's clearing off your dinner table and sitting down drawing something or writing something or whatever, do it. Make space for it. People will sometimes think when we're giving ourselves a hard time, well, this is frivolous or it's selfish or whatever. And it is not any of those things. <laughs> if it's good for us, it's good for everybody around us. And it's really hard to explain and describe how deep that is. And it's almost like a, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say, but it is a spiritual kind of thing 
that can't be filled by anyone else, like you're saying. Absolutely. The fact that we're all struggling with some thoughts of unworthiness or imposter syndrome or something. And then we break it down to the fact that we already know, like, all right, that there are different personality types. Some people are introverted, some people are extroverted. But there's a balance that everybody has to find. What I realized is that when I was in those extroverted situations like parties, in the midst of it, I was good. I could shoot the ship with the best of them. But it was always extremely draining to me, and it's always taking time for me to recharge. Being creative does that as well, and it allows you to dive deeper into yourself, uh, which people from the outside looking in might say, yeah, that's selfish. You're diving deeper into yourself. You're taking time away from us. The truth is, they're not going to like that person that you are when you don't create. And that's the nuts and bolts of it. <laughs> you think hangry is bad? Hang out with somebody who hasn't created in a while. <laughs> you don't want to see it. <laughs> and honestly, I think every single human is creative. It can be small things. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be how we make our money. But I do think that if we know it's okay to be in touch with that and know that it's such a good, valid thing, that it can be good for everybody. Art is under, undervalued in our society. As much as we love to look at pretty things and go to fun events and all that stuff, we don't really appreciate the creativity that goes into it. Art's always been underfunded in the public schools who value intellectual knowledge, rationality. There's a whole mother half to being a human being. Creativity, living intuitively, those sorts of things. People who are in touch with their feelings, with their selves, are usually, they can readily access that. You know, they're going to burst off into song or dance, you know, just like life is a musical because they feel it inside. Other people are going to be like, hey, that's not, in, you're not coloring in between the lines. And those are just a reference point. Come on, let's create. Like, it's like jazz, you know, like live, live your life like jazz. There's a jazz standard. There's a blues standard. Play around, jump out of that a little bit, you know? See what it's like to innovate. It's super important, uh, yet our culture tells us that it's not as important as, uh, you know, being able to what, balance your checking account, remember your social security number, all that crap, you know? Like, come on, does that give you life meaning and value? Maybe if you're a numbers person, but not for creative people. That's like extraneous BS. I'd rather forget it, but, you know, life dictates that I remember some of that stuff. Yeah. Life won't let us let go of all of it. We have to, we're forced to mix it all up together. <laughs> That's right. It, it is that juggling. You can't separate any part of life as much as we want to compartmentalize aspects of ourselves. You know, that's like denying that there's a hole that you have to live from, you know, like the wholeness is everything. Like you can't live all pleasurably because you have to have pain. Like that's the, the polarity of it like that's the truth of it is the world we live in is created by opposites you know you can't have hot without cold you can't have love without fear you can't all that stuff but the life itself is the totality of all of that so be rational and be creative you can do it all you contain multitudes what does being in nature do for you and your creativity 
for me, it's just as important as my creativity as far as feeling that inner sense of recharge. All I have to do is go sit by a creek or something and listen to it for a while, and I feel rejuvenated. When I feel anxious and I can't stop my mind from racing, if I just go for a walk on the way back down the mountain, I'm clear as a pond. And that's something that I realized coming from Florida, I've always hated the winter months. <laughs> Don't like the snow, didn't like going out in it, just cold. And uh, I found out about this guy named Wim Hoff. His nickname's the Iceman. But he uh, broke all these world records and stuff by basically going into the ice cold, freezing water in his shorts. And he's like, you could do it too. All you got to do is practice this breathing technique and put yourself in ice water every once in a while, you know, like regularly to basically build up your tolerance. Like people are too comfortable. We've become too comfortable as a society. We can't handle these extremes because we don't expose ourselves to them anymore. So that changed the way I felt about being out in the cold. And then there was something that clicked one day. Well, if you can be out in the cold, you could be out in the rain. You basically have no excuse to not go outside anymore. No more living in Asheville, one of the most beautiful places in the world. I lived here and didn't hike for like five years at least. One excuse after another, you know, like there's no excuse anymore. When I feel the urge to go outside, I'm going to just go, you know, that's, and, and it, it does, it, it feeds me. If I can't create, I got to be out in nature. If I could combine the two, that's what I want to do. Art, nature, and honestly, uh, spiritual thought to me, which is kind of the lens I've viewed the world through for a long time. But the quality of like looking at life from a deeper level than just surface stuff. What can I accumulate? What can I get? More about how can I give? which I think is really what it's about, you know? Like, sure, you need things to survive. We know that. We've been talking about it the whole time. We need art to survive, much less food, water, a safe environment. We need art. We need nature. Our whole, our whole society, our whole world has forgotten we are destroying our planet, you know? So I guess, okay. Why? Because we've forgotten how much nature gives us. We've taken it all for granted. Because we don't examine our lives. You know, we're fed these beautiful images. They flash in front of the screen and it does something new thing. You know? Sure, consumer culture has its benefits. But if you fully identify as a consumer and that's all you do, you know, more than a cog in the machine, which, yeah, the machine needs to keep going. We do all benefit from it. Somebody might be really angry that I just said the machine needs to keep going. But the truth is we all do benefit from it. But at the same time, if you make that the fullness of who you are, you're going to miss out on this deeper dimension of what life really is. One thing I've noticed that you're sharing some is playing the flute in the tunnel is at the Botanical Gardens, <laughs> which is like wonderful yes. acoustics. And I want to know what kind of flute is it and when did you get that idea and what does it feel like? I've been exploring the UNCA Botanical Gardens since I was at UNCA. That was the place we'd go to chill out. That was the place I wound up going to find some sort of solace that was easily accessible throughout all of my adult life. Like that's the creek I go to usually if I'm not sitting by the French Broad River. That, that tunnel 
I kind of stumbled upon it in my exploration, kind of got to jump across some rocks to get to it, kind of shimmy this little ledge. And it seems like the kind of place where like the water is extremely profound. So really the first time I was in the tunnel, I was probably completely silent. That tunnel is also decorated with a lot of spray paint, graffiti art that is really cool. Says a lot about the people who are painting it at the time, and it's ever changing. And I've only seen like a handful of people down there, never ever seen anybody spray paint on it, but it's like this constant narrative that's changing there. The idea to play the flute in the tunnel came from previous experiences of playing it in corridors, essentially. I had a friend in college who played the guitar, but we played one time flute, guitar together in the stairwell in our dorm. It didn't take very long for us to realize that, you know, the great acoustics that we were taking advantage of resonated through the entire building, including to the floors where these students were studying for this midterm exam and that RA was furious at us. So that led me to doing that in other stairwells and stuff. I'd find some like stairwell that no one went to very often and uh, would just play in it. And the immersion that happens with the sound, you know, the sustain pedal on the piano, blends all of your notes together and creates this i don't know i've always loved that that's what it does by the time i play the next note the first note it like overlaps it and when i'm in that tunnel in particular like the quality of the sound changes as i walk through the tunnel but there's some spot right around the center of the tunnel where i feel like i'm floating in space and the sound is surrounding me it's really an amazing feeling now that flute, the style of flute is modeled after medieval Japanese flute called the shakuhachi. Uh, shakuhachi was about two to three foot in length and traditional ones are cut from the root end of the bamboo. So they have like this bulbous top of the root. They, they look like clubs essentially. And the people who played them were wandering samurai, ronin. They were masterless samurai, I forget what era it was. Uh, Meiji Restoration, uh, after the Tokugawa shogunate was destroyed, swords were outlawed. The samurai, whose whole life purpose was to serve their master, lay down their life, had no purpose anymore. A lot of them turned to uh, Buddhism and became wandering itinerant priests, and they would carry around these flutes. And if they ever got into a scuffle, they could beat the crap out of somebody with these flutes. But uh, the sound of them is, uh, it's supposed to be a key of D, which I think this one is tuned to a key of D. And it's a Japanese scale, so it's a pentatonic scale. My mom bought it for me in 1998. I think it was an almost graduation present. So it's got some cool little decorations on it. Sun, wheat. And it's signed by this guy named Eric. Eric the Flute Maker. He's this really creative guy. He's on the internet. You guys can look him up if you want to. There's a lot of charity work in South America, basically raising funds through the sell of his fleets to help put in wells and you know, basically help others in another part of the world. Yeah, I've had this fleet for a long time, and uh, I love it. I don't play it every day, but I play it pretty often. For me, it's always been music, dance, and art, the three together. And that is mm -hmm. it's fun because you're sharing your triad also. So like 
the hiking and the moving and then playing an instrument and then making the art and, and then making the loop again. Yeah. I think it's real interesting that you called it this triad. That's a special number and all sorts of thinking. Yeah. The idea that it touches different parts of you, you know, mind, body, and spirit, maybe. I don't know. I feel like in some ways they resonate with the same parts of me in different ways. Maybe some of the problem solving with play stuff does touch that technical part of my mind. But a lot of the activities that I engage in uh, really put me in tune with that intuitive part of myself. That shows me that I can trust to find the next note that's right or you know, wherever the heck this path leads that I'm not sure how long this trail is going to be. Or that last pull when I'm really trying to get my play even, you know, like, hey, this thing might collapse. Let's just see how, how far I can go with it. That trusting yourself, which we, you know, we second guess with the rational part of our brain. Like, beep, 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 fighting with ourselves. Have you seen Luca yet? Oh, man. Okay. It's a beautiful movie. Beautiful movie. I recommend it for all families, but I recommend it for anybody who has that internal dialogue that tells you you're not good enough or you can't do it they call him bruno that's that thought that thought that's like nah albert you're not good enough now nah, you shouldn't be on a podcast like you don't you're not a successful artist that thing is called bruno in that movie they say silencio bruno say that to yourself whenever that thought that intrusive thought comes say silencio bruno I empower you to do anything anything you want got to learn to shut that internal dialogue off the inner critic. <laughs> I think it does take practice. I think it's a muscle. We project on the people around us that they don't have that voice, but actually we all do. And we all need a little sentence or a little something to say, like you're saying, to just catch it when it's coming, catch it when it's coming. The idea of free forming being a way to build trust in yourself. I love that idea. That was one question I had as a fellow musician is, are you playing a melody that's already set or are you kind of wandering through notes with the feeling? And that's really cool because that connects with the trusting yourself. Basically all the music I've ever learned, I've always felt this great disconnect in the analytical, rational learning part of my brain and music. Whenever someone tried to teach me to read music or explain how to read guitar tablature or break down like, the memorization of chords, stuff like that, there was this disconnect that always happened that made me really not pursue music as far as learning it. But I've always been drawn to instruments, irresistibly drawn to them. As a child, I had to pick them up. Like, I just couldn't help it. Through the flute, having basically one scale that I can move up and down, it taught me that the quality of a note depends on the note that precedes it and the note that follows it. And depending on how you change that, you're always playing music and you'll know when it's in discord. So, you know, when you feel the discord, you just change it, go up one note, go down one note, and then you'll find it automatically. And it's taken me a long time to translate that to stringed instruments. I've tried to play guitar for a long time, hated trying to memorize. I don't learn like that. And I had some wonderful friends uh, that taught me power chords. So. I have punk rock, rock and roll, and then I had a friend who taught me a one blues scale, and those two things have unlocked so much potential with the guitar, and I've never taken any lessons. So 
recently for Christmas, my father-in-law got me a ukulele and he tuned it like the top four strings on a guitar. But I can't put it down. It's like, I just want to play it all the times. There's always that, uh, that dichotomy with me where it's like, as soon as it becomes me thinking about learning something, the way we learn things, it's like I need to find someone who can be like, play this, blindfolds me and says, play this. It makes me figure out how to play that. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's what I need to do. Put a damn blindfold on. Learn to play like Doc Watson. <laughs> it's confirmation that everyone's brains work so differently. I had piano lessons when I was like seven years old and up for a little while. And it was a horrible experience. She was really forcing me into reading music. It wasn't making sense to me, but I was really shy, so I wouldn't admit it. And I got in trouble a lot with her and I wasn't that kind of kid to get in trouble. It was, she just didn't understand how I was thinking about things. And so over time, one of the cool things about old time music is it's by ear. And I think sometimes people if they don't have any music experience, they think you have to read music or that we're born that way or that it's magic when actually we just need to find an instrument that matches with us. And then somebody to explain a few things. When I'm teaching banjo, I imagine like demystifying what you think is magical because actually you could use these three little tips and tricks to do a lot for yourself. And when people have done that for me, like what you're explaining, it's just like, Ta-da! you know, oh my gosh, that's so much more approachable than I thought. I just needed somebody to demystify. That's the key right there. There are so many learning styles. Again, Susie Deloitte is the one who awakened me to that because I was a kid who struggled a lot with a lot of subjects, especially math and science and stuff in school. Language arts and art resonated with me intuitively somehow, but that rational brain, intellectual approach of uh, particularly math still stumps me. And it wasn't until I took classes with Susie and she talked about the different styles of learning that I realized, oh, wait, I need to do something. I need to see somebody doing it. I can learn auditorily. I know that. But it's less about the following instructions, uh, memorization, that kind of stuff doesn't work at all. And then for some people, like my son is brilliant at math. It clicked with him. But he, he admitted with the testing and stuff in school, he's like, I don't like English and language arts that much because the answers aren't so cut and dry. He really likes things to be set, which appeals to that you know, rational mind. And then on the other way, I like ambiguity. I really like embracing opposites. I really like all that stuff. I don't think anything has to fit in a box. I think that limits it. I want to break all the boxes and blur all the lines, but that's just me. You know, I also understand that there are other people out there to balance out me. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why we need everybody. I'm with you. I really like the gray. I think there's always gray. <laughs> Absolutely. So many shades of it, like black and white are so like this or that. Well, there's so much in between. What music or things you're listening to or artists that you're following are filling up your inspiration cup? Right now, I'm following Roberto Lugo, who's like an inner city artist, I believe, from Brooklyn. He's basically, I feel like he's really challenging the assumptions of what a potter looks like, where a potter comes from, and he's using his 
influence to basically bring pottery to people who may otherwise not have access to it. And I think that's beautiful. And everything he does seems so heartfelt. That resonates with me. That across the board with Instagram, that's what's really pulled me into following and engaging with people. Just seeing their vulnerability. Potters who admit that stuff explodes and things don't come out right and life balance is difficult. That's real. We all struggle with that. So, you know, there's part of me that just relates, for, you know, human to human. Another artist that I follow is uh, this, I think she's 14, 15 year old Canadian ceramic artist named Thule. I'm going to mess her last name up. Fiolona, something like that. Thule Fiolona. She's unschooled, which is a term that I guess is sort of like homeschooled, but with less of a structure. Either way, extremely creative. Her mother is a ceramic artist also named Carrie Whalen. If you're interested in unschooling, talk to them about it because they're online right now talking about it. I asked Tulia a question on Instagram about what it feels like to be unschooled. And it really gave me an idea of what they're sort of look like and it's really this beautiful free flowing of life art education or at least the way she described it didn't seem like the chaos that me coming up in a public school would assume that unschooling would look like that's not it like they are working towards something and she identifies as an entrepreneur and that's part of what they do part of the day is dedicated to making their art which they're going to make money from and then there's this interweaving of learning what all that means and how to navigate it. So their inspiration, like, I don't have any young kids right now. My kids are in public school. I kind of wish I would have done it all differently. I know a lot more now than I did then. That's an inspiration to me. The fact that, like, you could basically live life in a way other than I thought you could live it. There's a myriad of ways to do this. It's all the gray, like you were talking about. Follow a lot of other artists who make cool stuff, for sure. Music-wise... Still listening to a lot of reggae and kind of revisiting some punk rock, bad religion. The grandfathers of punk rock are still making albums. I still love those guys. They talk about the gray, all the nuances of life. I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm revisiting a lot of music that I listened to when I was younger for some reason. All the stuff that's happened in the recent years kind of like showed me that these thoughts had been around a long time ago. Like going back to listen to Operation Ivy and songs like Freeze Up and they're talking about basically our impending doom because as humans we somehow thought that being kind to each other is this negative thing you know and so we just step all over each other and destroy the world you know it's like oh well, these kids way back in 1980 whatever knew it and were preaching about it a lot of stuff falls on deaf ears, and we, as humanity, just go through these cycles over and over again. Going back to what you said, talking about you believe everybody is inherently creative, where a lot of people deny that. You know, they'll see that somebody has talent, and they'll be like, oh, I'd tear up a crowbar. That's a great saying. Like, there are people who feel like they can't fix something, you know, they would use, they would break something that's meant for destroying things, you know. People who can't draw anything but a stick figure, you know, stuff like that, like, no, it's just like you're talking about with music, like someone along the way taught you three little hacks, three hacks, so that you could somehow, your brain made sense of it. And you're like, oh yeah, here's, here's what I did. 
Whereas I think a lot of people limit themselves with the ideas they have. They're like, no, I'm not a creative person. As soon as you label yourself that, yeah, all right. You are what you say you are. Okay. You're not creative? Okay, fine. But you don't know until you try it. And then you might be like, oh, wow, why, why wasn't I doing this all along? <laughs> exactly. Why wasn't I doing this all along? <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts that you would share to someone who is trying so hard to be responsible and get everything done that needs to get done and still make and do? I would say first and foremost, have compassion for yourself. Everybody struggles with balance in life. Some people get a thrill out of checking off all the boxes. They're awesome at doing all the dishes, keeping their house clean, balancing a job. Not everybody is great at that. Do the things that make you happy and that feed your soul. Those things are paramount for your self-care. You can't give the other people in your life that you love 100% of yourself if you are not 100%. Take the time. Realize that some things just aren't important all the time. Sure, keep your house somewhat sanitary, but you don't always have to pick up the kids' toys off the floor before you go do that thing that feeds your soul. In fact, hopefully you can teach them to pick up after themselves eventually. I think it's important to keep creating no matter how hard it is, um, but know that balance is something that uh, you'll always be working toward. You're never going to get it 100%. So do what you can when you can. Don't beat yourself up about it if you can't. But know that you're not being selfish by taking care of yourself. Feed your soul because all that's going to do is radiate out into the world. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you soon. If you would like to be in touch or have someone you would love to hear interviewed, email me at afainhouse at gmail.com. I also hope that you're inspired to subscribe to this podcast. New episodes come out every Tuesday. If you would like to watch these interviews in video form and are curious about the happenings of my little business called Fane House, where I paint and make art prints and gift cards for my watercolor originals, I'd love for you to sign up for my email list. When you do, you'll get a coupon for 10% off a one-time purchase in my Etsy shop and first dibs on my annual limited edition calendar printing. You'll also be granted access to our free private Facebook group, which is the one spot you can watch these interviews. If that all sounds fun to you, go to your web browser and type bit.ly backslash Fainhouse to sign up. That's with a capital F and a capital H in Fainhouse. This is not a weekly newsletter, but rather a list of folks who are interested in hearing from me time to time. I'm Annie Fain Barillon. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. Creativity springs from the yearning to be the fullness of who you are. Ram Dass. Thank you.